0: Welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I am the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, four investors discuss the importance of early-stage funding and the need for startups to show traction and progress. They also highlight the potential of untapped sectors such as cement and agriculture in driving climate tech innovation. The conversation touches on the role of government regulation and incentives in supporting the growth of the climate tech industry. This conversation is moderated by Alex Wilhelm, TechCrunch Editor-in-Chief.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Alex, and I'm here from TechCrunch. Welcome to the first Check into Climate Tech panel. We have an absolutely amazing collection of people. I'm going to give them each a quick introduction before we start. Uh, We have Laurie Manu, a founding partner at At One. Laurie, hello. We also have Stephanie Dorsey, a founding partner at E Squared JDJ. Hello. And then we have Corinna Chen, a partner at Material Impact. Hello. And then we also have Dr. Pei Wu from here at SOSV and IndieBio. Pei, how are you? Hey. All right. So one thing that absolutely surprised me when I was prepping for our conversation today was an actual decline in how much capital climate tech startups raised in the first half of this year. When I look around the news, when I look outside, it's relatively terrifying to see what's going on with our planet. And so if I was not watching the numbers, I would presume that we would be seeing an explosion in capital going into climate tech focused companies. Not quite the case. Um, Hey, starting with you, are you surprised by the numbers we've seen thus far in 2023 or are they in line with what you were expecting?
2: I think we're, we're seeing uh, maybe a bit of slower activity, but as we're coming into this final quarter of the year, um, activity has picked up and, and we are seeing much more um, interest in, in investing in, in these super important companies.
1: All right. And then, Corinna, over to you. Are you seeing the same thing, kind of an acceleration or an uptick as we have moved past the halfway mark of 2023?
3: I definitely am. I feel like for a lot of firms that perhaps were cautious and sat out in 2022, you know, after about a year and a half, you know, we had to kind of decide to move forward. So I've definitely seen an uptick in the second half of 2023. And I'm really hopeful that the trend will continue in 2024, especially as we see some of the markets open up with a couple of key IPO offerings. Even though it's in a different industry, it's all indicator that maybe things
1: are kind of moving a little bit forward. All right. And then, Stephanie, I know that your firm has an ag focus to it, so it's slightly more focused than some of the broader climate tech funds, but what are you seeing on the ground? Are things looking better than the 40% decline we saw in the first year, first half of this year in the back half of 2023?
0: Yeah, I would say the same. You know, Really, no one's insulated from the broader global markets, but you do see that um, the strong startups are still able to raise. It is a more challenging fundraising environment across the board, but- you're seeing that the opportunities are really broadening.
1: On the macro point about you know you can't kind of outrun where the overall market is, is climate tech investing and climate tech startups doing better, worse, or kind of in line with the market as a whole, Stephanie?
0: Yeah, so the data actually suggests that they're doing better. It's a bit more resilient, so that's the you know promising part there. So hopefully we could keep that up.
1: You no, know, I'm encouraged by that. Um, Laurie, I'm curious about what you're seeing in terms of uh, different stages, because we're talking about an aggregate figure from the first half of this year, a 40% decline. But inside of that, there's pre-seed, there's seed, there's you know, middle, late stage. So when you look at the different stages of climate tech companies in your portfolio and outside, um, where is there the most activity and where are things the healthiest from a venture perspective?
4: Yeah, and I think that's why climate is so interesting and early-stage climate. If you look at the first half of 2023, actually seed stage saw an increase in terms of funding of 20%. So it's super exciting because a bunch of funds closed last year focused on on climate. So there is money for early-stage climate uh, companies, and we saw I mean, several companies, rounds that we led, first part of the year being oversubscribed, and rounds being very competitive. So it's really exciting. I think the hard part is for later stage uh, companies. I mean, Series C, Series D, it's really tough. takes a while to waste funding, and there is not a lot of money available for later stage uh, climate uh, tech companies.
1: I don't think there's a lot of later stage capital available, period, uh, kind of across the venture capital market. It seems like the later stage money has retracted the most, but I am glad to hear that there is a, a good amount of activity at the earliest stages. Hey, Um Laurie mentioned competitiveness inside these rounds. Is that changing the pricing dynamics that you're seeing inside of early stage climate tech companies?
2: I think we are seeing generally pricing is is, is not changing a huge amount. Um, I think the the bar is high right now, especially. I mean, you know, we we are we're a pre-seed fund. And, uh, and so we, we are spending a lot of time working with our companies on their seed rounds and their series A's. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe there's been, uh, small changes in pricing for sure, but nothing, nothing huge, uh, in, in terms of big differences. But I think what we are seeing is that activity, um, the oversubscriptions that Lori is referring to and, I think investors recognizing that capital for these early stage companies is, is so critical because these are companies that are you know, building new markets um, and probably have CapEx requirements that are going to be more significant even at the earlier stages. And, and so that recognition is, is leading to better capitalization earlier on.
1: All right. And then, Corinna, I want to get you in on the same question about kind of how competitive rounds are from your perspective and uh, how much that's moved prices um, just from kind of your perspective point.
3: Yeah, I would echo what they said in the sense that I'm not really seeing that the prices are moving up for the competitive rounds. But what I am seeing is that, you know, companies that are, you know, have great benchmarks and are performing well that those, are, those companies are being funded, and they're being funded, you know, I wouldn't say quickly, but much quicker than other companies. Ah. But I would say that the valuation in terms of it being dampened is around the same in terms of the bar is higher. We are looking for more metrics, more milestones, but that the quality is trumping everything else and that those rounds are being competitive and they are being filled at a more reasonable time frame.
1: Okay. I want to get to where the bar is for the founders in the audience in a second. But Stephanie, one more question on kind of the mechanics of where fundraising is today. Um, I've spent a lot of time in my career watching the startup world um, through different cycles and over longer than I want to admit in public, Um, I've seen different funding mechanisms become popular. Convertible notes were the hottest thing for a while, then everyone started to use safes. So when you're looking at early, very early rounds today, what is the main um, fundraising mechanism that founders want to use to both raise money and also protect their own um, stake in their business?
0: Yeah, I would say it's pretty common to see safes and convertible notes. You really don't start seeing the price equity rounds until series A.
1: Okay, and uh, but no, no changes there. Nothing that founders should kind of watch out for. There might be a tripwire or anything to stumble upon
0: yeah, not really on the the instrument itself.
1: Okay, good. So if you want to raise a price seed round, don't do it. because apparently <laughs> yeah, no one wants that. <laughs> Actually, Stephanie, just on that point, um, I saw some data that said that in safe rounds we are seeing more uh, caps, more discounts, and other more you know investor friendly terms as the funding market has changed. Um, are you seeing more investor protection and kind of investor friendly terms in those safes and convertible notes in the market today?
0: Yeah, you know, I've read a lot about that, too, but I haven't really seen it reflected in the rounds that, you know, I've come across. Maybe it's different in food and ag, but it seems like, you know, the terms are pretty much the same. It's just you're seeing, at least in food and ag, a little bit lower prices. So I would say at most around 15 percent lower valuations.
1: All right. And then, Pei, same question to you about um, discounts, caps and other things for safes and convertible notes. Anything that founders should be expecting and maybe notes on what's too much?
2: we are seeing some slight changes okay look this is very different from 2021 i'll just say that really clearly right <laughs> so yes. uh, so the the standards from 2021 are um, aren't aren't as applicable these days like when we're looking at notes for example or, or safes um we are starting to see these. Uh, mechanisms that investors are bringing in that maybe were more familiar uh, in the early 2000s um, related to liquidation preferences, um, maybe even larger discounts, things like that. Uh, But I don't think that anything is untoward. And it's, it's mostly just a reflection of investors, I think, being more thoughtful about how they want to deploy their capital. Frankly, the Competition is great out there. There's amazing companies. Uh, the, the feeling of optimism that I have is that there's so many people who want to start companies to solve this problem. That is a good thing. And with competition does come, I think, a little bit of di- different, uh, different motivations. Not, not motivation, sorry. but um, Incentives. Incentives. Thank you. And, and so that is being reflected in some of the documents that, that we're seeing.
1: All right. So, Laurie, a founder comes to you and says, hey, you know, my seed round's looking like um, a $5 million cap on my safe and the lead wants a 25% discount on this. Do those terms seem aggressive? Do they seem reasonable? Like, how would a founder, how would a founder from your perspective do in a, in a round like that?
4: I'd say discounts are still the same, still seeing 20% max in terms of discounts. Okay. But as Stephanie was saying earlier, price is lower. I think higher dilution for the companies. I mean, we used to see 21, but again, as Pei said, 21 was crazy, crazy year, but we used to see, I don't know, 20, 25% dilution per hand back then. Yeah. Now it's more like 30, 35, I've seen 40% dilution at seed stage. Yeah. So equity is expensive. So highly recommend to spend time looking at your budget, looking at the ski milestone and exactly how much you need, because, yeah, founders are taking yeah,
1: high dilution at the early stage. That's 40% sounds um, nearly punitive given where norms mm-hmm. were a couple of years ago. So I'm glad you said that because actually does set kind of an upper bound on what people should expect. Now, everyone I think has mentioned uh, raising the bar and things kind of going up from a quality perspective of expectations. Um, very useful as a bit of, of speech, but I'm curious what that means in context. So Corinna, when you're talking about the bar being higher, Uh, For founders, what does that actually mean on the ground?
3: Yeah, and I think the bar is different at different stages when, let's say today, let's focus on pre-seed seed seed, and then, you know, what you want to do to prepare for A. And I'll focus a little bit more on the seed and A component. I think from what we're looking at is, you know, as a seed stage that not only do you have, let's say, a proof of concept, but um, but that you're working towards commercialization, that you have a product development roadmap. You have an idea of um, your potential business partners and you have a, you know, I would say a a decent commercialization story. And as you go into the A round, the expectation there is you've gone from like a proof of concept partner to basically initial early traction and you're either at MVP or really close. Some of the things I'm saying is around earlier than what you would have expected in 2021. But I think that's the sentiment in terms of generally what that means is. You know, we're looking more for or we're expecting companies to kind of make actual traction rather than, let's say, uh, build on potential um, in the first, let's say, pre-C, C, perhaps A round and just kind of moving moving that bar up around earlier than you would normally expect in the heyday in, 20, in 2020, 2021.
1: So, so by raising the bar, really what we're doing is we're just expecting quite a lot more progress and kind of like hard work to do. Um, earlier on, so what you may have gotten done in an A, now you have to get done by your seed round, and I presume that goes for seed and pre-seed as well.
3: I don't, you know, Material Impact. We don't invest a lot in pre-seed, so I'll let someone else answer that. But I would say for us, those are the things that we are expecting when you come to a seed or A round.
1: Okay, Stephanie, uh, jumping on this, raising the bar, aka moving the goalposts up a little bit. Does that track with what you're seeing from founders and also your firm's expectations?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're saying, too, is differentiation is really becoming critical Um, just because it is a harder fundraising environment. A lot of the smaller companies that aren't differentiated, they just won't be able to raise. So really focusing on, you know, your core competitive advantage, um, building that mold uh, just to have defensibility around your business is really critical. And as Corinna said, we want to see, you know, clear metrics and some positive traction signaling as well.
1: All right, now let's talk about the earliest stage, the pre seed pay, that means you. So please, uh, notes on what you, we just heard, and also what do you expect founders to bring to the table when they're coming to SOSV for a pre seed round?
2: Yeah, I mean, what? I think one thing that we really counsel our founders on is that this really isn't about story anymore. And even for us, so we we will take companies. we'll we'll start investing in in companies that are still paper ideas. That's okay for us because we're we're extremely comfortable with technology risk. Um, we're extremely comfortable working with uh, first time founders. And so those two things in combination do mean that we we have to work off of, paper concepts and a little bit of story. But much of what our team puts our effort into with working with our companies is to drive them towards reality and to to no longer rely on a story um, and instead start building out a data package, building out traction, whatever, whatever traction can look like for a team that's still building their first prototype. Or maybe just uh getting their getting their first conversations with customers going. And so it's it's really it's really about not being reliant on this idea of a story anymore and and simply simply put building a business.
1: Yeah. I, I always found it a little bit scary when people were talking about how important storytelling was for startups. And I was like, that's interesting because I thought high margins and rapid revenue growth we all you needed when it comes to telling a story, like just drop the income statement and walk away. Um, but you mentioned traction. I thought that was very interesting, mentioning, you know, uh, you know, an MVP or early customer conversations. When we think about traction for these early stage climate tech founders, what are some other examples of things that people can bring to the table to show that they have made progress, that they are ready for that next round, and that they are, uh, for lack of a better word, serious?
2: I'll say this, you know, the, the cool thing about, where I see a lot of t- climate tech companies right now is that so much of what, are, what we're investing in is around making some foundational changes to legacy industries. And what that what that in turn looks like is that most of these companies will likely be B2B businesses who yeah. need to figure out how to engage with these legacy industries. And so effectively working your way into uh, these hundred some year old companies and and finding an angle that is solving a genuine problem for them is 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 a is a startups you know first job in in building that that feeling of traction or the concept of traction even even if they don't have the technology fully proven out yet and that is where a little bit of you could maybe call it storytelling is involved. And that's because you have to be able to convey to these maybe conservative legacy industries Ah. what the possibilities are in the future if this technology works. And then in turn, convince them to work with you in some way, some kind of partnership, some kind of collaboration. And if you're able to do that effectively, then what you're showing to the investor is that yeah, there's a problem that's being solved and that there can be an income sheet sometime, hopefully in the near future.
1: Got it. OK, so it's, it's pre income statement, but certainly there are <laughs> material things you can do that show that you are not miles from that, but maybe more like months or quarters away. OK, um, Lori, I want to bring you in here and get your perspective. I know that you're currently over in Europe, so same kind of, uh, of landscape over there.
4: Actually, Europe, but still focus on the US. But maybe just to, to follow up on what Pay was was mentioning. I mean, it's, it's really critical for us to focus on those legacy industries and to completely reset the way we do things. The issue is that those industries are extremely cost sensitive. Many of them, tech steel industry, cement industry, even agriculture, are very conservative, and there are a bunch of solutions that are brought to the market with some green premium. And typically, hmm. I don't believe in green premium. So with that one, we focus a lot on unit economics. We want to see at the moment of our investment um, from the physics fundamentals of the solution, superior unit economics, meaning that the solution ultimately is going to be at least at cost parity, if not cheaper than incubant technologies on the market, just to make it a no brainer for those industries to adopt the solution. Because I mean, we need to act now. We don't have solid years in front of us if we want to to stop this increase of of temperature. So we need to to really reset those industries now, and we need to make it easy for them to to adopt those solutions.
1: I'm a, I mean, to be clear, not to be negative, but I'm almost disappointed to hear that you're not a big fan of the green premium. Because if there was more market uh, willingness to pay more for things that were more climate friendly, that would make this entire thing a lot easier. Um, dang okay uh stephanie i know you're heavily in the ag space is there also no green premium that you expect your founders to be able to kind of reap in that area because when i shop for food i always try to buy organic free range happy chicken stuff and so forth so i pay a green premium uh weekly um so i'm curious if that does show up in your uh, area of focus
0: Yeah, you know, especially in food, you do have to start with higher prices, but we want to see that there is a pathway to lowering your prices because you can't really have the impact if, you know, you're catering to only a particular sub-segment of society. Um, And particularly with farmers, too. I mean, it's skinny margins, and so they really want to see something that has ROI um, relatively quickly, and they don't really want to experiment with things that may or may not pay off either sometimes, and so we want to see that, you know, for instance... If they've actually gotten engagement from farmers and they've been able to do demos or pilots and they might start more expensive, there's still a pathway to be able to lower prices.
1: I just realized how hard of a sector ag must be from a venture perspective because farming margins are relatively slim. Grocery store margins are famously like 0.5% or whatever. Where Where is the margin in the ag sector that leads to venture style businesses? Like, I, I'm, I know this is a little bit off topic, but I'm perplexed and very curious.
0: Yeah, it really ranges. So, you know, the good thing is that companies that do have slim margins, they're looking to expand those margins, right? And so, for instance, we've invested in grocery tech that improves, you know, inventory management, order management analytics, it's POS systems, and um, just sort of the full range of things and also reducing food waste. And so what they're able to do is actually enhance the margins of grocery stores. And then you also see with farming too, it really, um, you know, the resource inputs are really expensive. So if you can lower those inputs by having more sustainable farming practices, then that actually is a huge sell for farmers. Ah,
1: so it's not about capturing existing margin. It's about using technology to expand margin while also doing good.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, that actually makes, I take it all back. That makes perfect sense. I understand. Thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry. I was just missing a trick somewhere in, the, in, that, in that process. Um, all right, Corinna, I want to talk about founders some, because I have some friends who have PhDs. They love to talk about what they love to talk about, and they would not always make the best founders, just to be totally honest. But when I think about the climate tech space, I think about, I mean, and this may be very silly of me, scientists coming out to build companies and putting on a new hat, if you will. Um, but do founders today that do focus on climate tech do Do they have to have a a strong scientific background themselves or is in the founding team enough um, to get your firm's attention?
3: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the founding team part. You know, it's too hard to be a single founder. So I'm a big proponent of a team. And I think somewhere in there, the technical expertise is going to be really important. A number of reasons um, in terms of innovation is what we hope for is that this is new innovation, new science, and part of it is just solving problems. And we expect that of um, not just scientific founders, but the founders in general and the team itself. So from my perspective, you know, that element is important. Um, It doesn't always mean that the original scientific founder is, you know, best to be the CEO, nor a lot of times they don't even want to be. But I think a well-rounded founding team is really important because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is translation of basic science into a business and you want that IP to be valuable. You want that innovation to be valuable. And to do so, you have to understand and also highlight the business model, what you're trying to do so that you can articulate value proposition, competitive advantage, and meeting those customer needs. So at the end of the day, it's extremely vital. Is it the only thing? No, because you need in the end of the day to basically work towards a business. And, you know, and that, I think, goes back to what Pay said earlier in terms of working towards reality.
1: Yeah. I was going to bring pay in. So thanks for that really very convenient segue. But in the indie bio realm of SOSV, I presume that you're dealing with a lot of folks who do have a pretty in-depth scientific background.
2: We do. Um, very significant majority of our founders are, are PhD holders. Um, most of them, some of my best friends are PhDs. Um, uh, most of them were actually the inventors on the core technology. So, so we we do see a lot of you know really great founder product fit. Mm-hmm. Um, what we also really look for are founders who have good founder market fit, and that. Might look like some experience in industry, uh, but what c- that can also look like, especially for people who are coming straight out of academia, are people who have a genuine curiosity and care and empathy for the mm-hmm. customer that they're going towards. But so that that could be the mining industry, that could be the cement industry, but they have to care deeply about the problems that the operators in those again legacy industries are dealing with, and. Having founders who, who care and want to learn and are curious and, and believe they can solve a, a real on-the-ground problem, those are, those are really the ones that are best suited to, to go after this hard business of building a business.
1: Is the number of people who wake up and go, the cement industry, that's my jam – is that a deep founder pool or is that a, a thinner layer that I might expect? Because I, I have some niche interests, but I've never gone, woken up and think copper mining. That's what I need to fix, you know?
2: <laughs> you should get out more, Alex.
1: <laughs> they don't let me out of this room. This is just my, I just stay in this chair. Look,
2: I I will say from where I'm sitting, I see so many People, young people, um, you know, early professionals, mid-career professionals who are saying, I'm I'm done with being an oil and gas like this is this is not this is not why I set out to go to college and and work hard making making the oil companies wealthier isn't the thing that I I thought that I was going to be doing in my life. And, and I think it's really, uh, like again, exciting that so many people are harnessing that energy and being able to direct it towards uh, technology companies that are, that are setting out to, again, solve this existential problem that we're facing.
1: I fully understand not wanting to wake up just to increase ExxonMobil's dividend, but <laughs> I currently work for private equity. So I think sometimes you wake up and you work for an entity, you're not exactly like... Yeah, all of that. So I'm I'm with you on that. Um, Laurie, over to you. I'm curious where your firm is seeing the most interesting uh, technological progress that's leading to very interesting startup ideas. I know that Climate Tech is very broad. Uh, During our prep call, we all talked about kind of the the limits of it and if there are any. But Laurie, where are you seeing the most interesting technology and uh, why does it excite you?
4: I think it's a good segue with the conversation you were just having. I think to me, the most interesting sectors are those untapped ones. The less sexy in a sense, cement, steel making, I mean, industrial heat processing, because in terms of carbon emissions, it's actually huge. Today, venture capital, a lot is focused on the cool topics, transportation, so over half of uh, venture funding. And then next you have energy. But when you look at the sectors, carbon emissions are not that huge. I mean, transportation is 15% of carbon emissions, so it's something. It's not everything. But then you have sectors like cement, as we, we talked about, which is uh, roughly 7% of carbon emissions. Same for steel making. Industrial uh, heat processes, 9% of carbon emissions. And Stephanie, with her form focused on, on ag and food, I mean, because methane, and nitrous oxide is much more potent than CO2. In the next 20 years, ag and food will represent 30% of the carbon emissions. So actually, that's the kind of sectors uh, where we spend lots of time because there uh, are some very exciting uh, technologies that are being developed. And these industries have been uh, very kind of traditional and not a lot of innovation have, have happened there.
1: So that's a great overview of where we're seeing climate in, uh, impacting pollutants are coming from. But inside of those sectors, be it agriculture or, or be it you know, cement or whatever, what are people building that's, that's, that's new that you think is particularly... Um, like,
4: I can give you a few examples, but sure. steel making, for example. I mean, the process today emits 7% of carbon emissions. So we have an investment in a company which has developed a novel chemical process, fully eliminating carbon emissions... While being cheaper than current blast furnaces, because I mentioned earlier, unit economics are very important to us. So that's one example. Lithium-ion battery recycling, and this whole topic around critical metals is also very exciting to me. So stuff related to mining, and you mentioned copper earlier. I mean, those are topics that are really exciting and basically new chemical approaches for for metal extraction.
1: Uh, Corinna, I know your firm mentions uh, working on sustainable manufacturing uh, on its website. Um, what are you guys seeing in that area that's a particularly exciting to you and your partners?
3: Yeah, you know what we aim for is we have a broad definition of climate tech, so we look at it in terms of uh, positive change in aggregate. And so, what we're really thinking about in terms of sustainable manufacturing as one pillar is, you know, more efficient and cleaner ways of doing the things that we need to do, you know, to produce products that we ultimately rely on today. And so, you know, we have a company where, you know, if you're machining a part it uses a lot of oil, a lot of water, and we have to figure out where to, where to, you know, where that waste stream is. And if you can improve that manufacturing component by using none of those components, that's what the company aims to solve. And so, you know, we're focused on also looking at um, climate tech opportunities that are not only in manufacturing, but also in other spaces in terms of mobility, um, or even the fashion and textile industry which we have a number of investment in as well which is what we're talking about is can there be energy savings can there be water savings and and in many ways it's being finding ways for industries to be more efficient and cleaner and so that's what we view in terms of climate tech and so we're seeing a number of uh, companies and innovations that address that in the aggregate and in, in the end um i would say greener business is more sustainable and that's what we aim to do
1: Okay. No, I appreciate that. One thing that I've been thinking about while I was prepping for our, our chat today is kind of the balance point between uh, commercial interest and viability for startups that work in the climate space and also the sheer like impact they might have on the climate because most businesses don't have an externality that makes life better for everybody. Like, If you make a new CRM, great, but it's not going to like save trees. Um, Whereas the stuff that we're talking about today does have kind of a a positive financial impact and much more for all of us. So Stephanie, when you guys are, are picking where to invest, how much weight do you put on, I'm a venture capitalist, and how much weight do you put on, I want the planet to be healthier and this technology might help us get there?
0: Yeah, well, you know, for us, our thesis entirely centers around food and ag and companies that are moving the needle when it comes to planetary health. So One has to exist with the other, and we believe there actually isn't a trade-off. And, you know, really the most valuable companies will be created in this space, and it's not something where we could sidestep it or go around it. It's something that needs to be immediately addressed. It's a climate risk. It's a business risk for everyone. Um, So I think for us, you know, we see companies across the value chain that are, you know, addressing greenhouse gas emissions, land, water, energy usage and reducing waste. And that has to be part of, you know, the company's mission in order for us to invest.
1: So I, I really hope that you're right. But looking back in time, the companies that have often made a lot of money that had a climate impact were having a negative climate impact. And you're describing the world that sounds like when having um, a, a net negative carbon footprint or whatever is going to be economically um, viable and, and very profitable. D- does the the government kind of like landscape need to change to, to shake up the incentives for how we treat carbon and other pollutants to make that possible? Or does the world you're describing work with how things are today?
0: I would say the world is changing. I think we had a huge one with the IRA. And so, you know, that's the biggest government investment we've had in climate and energy in the history of the U.S. And so I think that's actually going to really spur the climate ecosystem. Um, But you also have government programs like, you know, at the DOE, the STIR, and also state programs, you know, within California, for instance, CalSEF, that clean energy and climate energy or climate tech startups can really tap into. Um, But I really think, you know, going back to the IRA, it really could be leveraged. It's, It's early in the process, but... Um, The incentives can be leveraged, for instance, for companies that are reaching out to customers um, to say, hey, you know, you can tap into these incentives if you are doing this particular clean energy project. Let's sell this to you in this way so that you can tap into that. And that helps them unlock customers. There's also access to debt financing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it'll also just create other market expansion opportunities as time goes on. But I think it's a really huge one for the industry. And it's really creating the ecosystem that we need.
1: All right, Pei, I want to bring you in on the IRA. And if you don't know what we're talking about, it's the Inflation Reduction Act. It was passed August of 2022. i uh, just to put that on the calendar for you. But, Pei, I'm curious. Um, I've heard a lot of people talking about it. Has there been an impact for your portfolio companies and also for startups you're looking at uh, for possible investment?
2: I'd say it has an impact in that it it, it does map out some opportunities in terms of what is the – where. Where is the financial possibility for for these companies? Again, we we work at such an early stage that um, tax incentives, for example, are, are going to be a few years off. But the reality is, uh, something like the IRA and the tax incentives that come with it, they are greasing the skids for the market as a whole, and facilitating the intake of new technologies and, and new ways of doing business that are going to be more sustainable and intend to have this impact at a large scale. And so e- the U.S. government does a really good job of greasing the skids for lots of large markets, and I believe that climate tech is one of these markets that uh, will, should, and will benefit from from this similar kind of whole of government approach. Um, it's just that it's a different enemy than World War II or uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, and and but we it it's it's no less important.
1: Agreed, agree there. Laurie, I saw you smiling, so I'm going to bring you in just for a really quick response to what uh, Pay said about uh, government regulation and impacts thereof.
4: Yeah, no, I think government regulation, I don't know about regulation, but the IRA, I think, fully agree with with pay, and it's going to drive more investments in in the sector. But it's not only the the tax credits, there are a bunch of grants available. I mean, one of our portfolio companies got $480 million from the DOE in non-dilutive funding. So there is money available out there for, for climate tech startups, usually at a later stage. So we need to make sure, as investors, to be here to help the companies leverage those, those fundings, because it's going to help accelerate the, the entire field.
1: All right. And then, Corona, we just have time for one more, one more short one. Um, When I think about the amount of work that needs to get done to get our climate kind of back on track, uh, I'm curious, what fraction of that work do you think startups are going to be able to do in the next five or 10 years? And uh, is that enough?
3: Yeah, I think what, you know, what we're learning is, you know, when we want to talk about making impact, we're looking at the larger industries, um, you know, we're not necessarily thinking about you know people driving a Prius, but we're we're kind of tackling large industries, as whole, well, these legacy industries that you know, we alluded to earlier, and being really um, savvy about you know what that process is and understanding how that business works today. So I would say, even though there's a lot of things to work on, um, I do hope that the uptake is high in the sense that we are tackling these uh, legacy industries, whether it be in oil and gas, in traditional energy or even in fashion textiles or manufacturing. But starting there, I think, is a good
1: good place. All right. Well, everyone, thank you very much for your time. And thanks to At One, e JDJ, Material Impact, and SOSV for lending their folks to this conversation. Uh, if you are raising early stage capital in climate tech, I hope that was useful. And please keep working because it's a billion degrees in the Northeast today. And I would like it to be back to normal because I am sweating. Thank you all very much. And we'll hand you back over.